This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host in today's episode. With me is Will Bushman, our color commentator and our student ministries director here at Rio Vista. I was just mad last week that I wasn't on the podcast, and obviously she's your wife, but I'm not the wisest and most beautiful person that you ever had on this podcast. Definitely not. Mm, Definitely not. You're, you're like down the list. You're I not know. even third. Not even third. <laughs> it hurts. All right, so as you know, we are coming into our last episode on reasons why the gospel absolutely exploded in the first century. Like, why would God ordain all things to come to pass, Jesus coming in the first century? And I had an interesting conversation at lunch just yesterday with my microgroup, and one of the people in my microgroup brought up, like, wouldn't it make more sense for Jesus to come today, like when there's social media and tweets and internet and planes and you could get around really fast like we we've gone through all these reasons but like it wouldn't it be better today and we had the most interesting conversation because when you stop and think about it if if the goal of the gospel was just to get it in front of as many eyeballs and ears as humanly possible then well clearly today would be the day but back in the day you, when you did anything, it was like a six hour walk. You know, when you traveled, you were walking, you had time, you invested in people where today we would say that the breadth of the gospel would be really easy to spread. It'd be amazing. But the depth Mm -hmm. of discipleship would be really, really shallow today. Like we don't do relationships. Well, we want everything done in a text message. You know, we microwave our food. Everything has to be ready right now. The idea of deep discipleship is something that we struggle with today. And that, more than anything else, I think, is what paved the way for the gospel to explode. The depth of discipleship, having people who were willing to give their entire lives to this based on the faith that they had formed through relationships with other Christians, was far more important than how many ears could hear the gospel. That's why it exploded, because it was precious. Anyway, it was just a fascinating conversation that came out of this. Any thoughts? No, it's interesting. I've never thought, I've just assumed Jesus said this the right time, and I've never, you, you know. You don't question God? No. <laughs> I'm, I'm holier than you, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. It must be. Because, like, I love thinking about, like, what is the wisdom of God? Why would he do it that way? Yeah. And I really think, like, you know, apart from the Holy Spirit, obviously, who brings us to life? It does make sense. Like, if he came today the way that relationships are, as hard as it is to disciple people with the busyness of everything, Mm. back then, depth of discipleship would have been much easier. Breadth of evangelism would have been harder. So just something to chew on that we've been talking about. So today we're going to jump into an entirely new course, and this is going to be how Jesus attracted marginalized groups of people. And it's so fascinating to me, really, really fascinating, because when I think of early church, I think, you know, men, because usually that's the writings that we have. You think European 
you think centralized, but actually the early church blew up in North Africa. The early church blew up toward Persia and the East. I mean, it also went into Europe, but what we're going to find today is that the early church was made up of the people <laughs> that, that the Roman culture mocked hmm. that the early church was filled with these people like, Oh, you're getting the lowest rungs of society, uh, which I think is really pretty wonderful. Um, so just so you can understand how hard <laughs> it would have been in the first century for a female to have any kind of dignity offered to her, I'm going to read a series of quotes that could easily get me canceled, just even reading these quotes of people. But I want you to jump into the mindset of the centuries that are in play when Jesus comes, okay? So Aristotle, for example. So Aristotle's, you know, 300 plus years before Jesus, he's pretty close. He's one of the most influential Greek philosophers of the day. He's still massively influential on the world when Jesus is walking around. How did Aristotle feel about women? Listen to this quote. The female is a female by virtue of a certain lack of qualities. We should regard the female nature as afflicted with a natural defectiveness. How do you feel about that, Will? I just feel like this is not some obscure dude in his parents' basement. Like, this is Aristotle saying this, mm -hmm. so this is widely accepted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. he's considered one of the wisest people, and he's saying you're a, you're, you're a female because you're naturally defective. Oof. So I want you to, why do I say that? I want you to imagine that you're a woman who's living in the first century world, and this is one of the prevailing views of your identity. You're naturally defective. Then you jump Cato the Elder. So we're getting closer to Jesus. Here's, here's a Roman philosopher, right? Woman is a violent and uncontrolled animal, and it is useless to let go the reins and then to expect her not to kick over the traces. You must keep her on a tight rein. Again. Wild. So if you're right, yeah. So this is this is before the gospel spreads through the world, you know. So when when all of the people, you know, give the gospel a lot of grief for being patriarchal and all that stuff, I want you to understand the world that the gospel is born into and to see what the gospel does to that world. So Plutarch, here's a historian, Roman, very influential, very famous. A wife should have no feelings of her own but share her husband's seriousness and sport his anxiety and his laughter. In other words, you have no business having thoughts of your own. You don't even have a business to your own laughter, your own worries, your own serious thoughts or sport. This is the world that Jesus is born into. How are you feeling, Will? I'm looking at this and writing. It's even tougher. So all you guys just hearing this, just know. <laughs> It's awful. Like, it's, it's unbelievable. Cicero, who's like pretty contemporary with Jesus's day, a little bit before him, says, Our ancestors, in their wisdom, considered that all women, because of their innate weakness, should be under the control of guardians. In other words, they can't be trusted to make their own decisions or lead their own lives. Why? Because they are innately weak. That's a pretty wild world for the gospel to be birthed into. Um, and just, just for, for some perspective with other things, you've heard of the apocryphal books? Yeah. So apocryphal books, if you've, if you've never heard that term before, apocryphal books are books that claim to be inspired. They claim to be written by you know, biblical characters, and 
here recently, you know, every time you get to a religious holiday like Easter, the History Channel runs some special and they make it sound like, you know, the Gospel of Thomas was really supposed to be in the Bible, but, you know, the early church was afraid of it, or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, or the Gospel of Judas. And we know all scholarship, every serious scholar agrees that these are forgeries that were written centuries later and tried to impose, like, oh, yeah, the, Thomas really wrote this. But the Gospel of Thomas, which is written 200 years after Jesus, right? And so it's somebody writing it, pretending to be Thomas. The guy's clearly a Gnostic, which is a, which is a heresy that says the body is bad, the physical is bad. But I want you to listen to how he writes about Simon Peter talking about women, because this is wild. But he's writing this because people in that day and age would have heard it and gone, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I could see that. Hmm. So this is what Thomas, this is a fake gospel. Let me clarify that. This is a fake gospel. Simon Peter said to them, let Miriam go out from among us, for women are not worthy of the life. And like if, if Jesus heard that, of course he's going to rebuke, but in the gospel of Thomas, not a real gospel, listen to what Jesus says. Look, I will lead her that I may make her male in order that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Say say what? <laughs> you know? So in this, you have such a culture that's prevalent in that world, so opposed to women. There's no dignity of women. There's no right for them to exist apart from a man. That here you have Jesus saying, no, no, no. I mean, he's, I guess he's ahead of his time with all the transsexual culture. I'm going to take the, the woman and I'm going to make her male because unless she becomes a male, she can't enter heaven. That's the kind of belief systems that are running rampant when Jesus comes. And so then obviously Jesus is a shocking person when he's on this earth because, mm -hmm. you know, you think of the major stories, you know, woman at the well, you know, you think of, you know, the woman who comes to his feet and breaks the alabaster flask and they mm -hmm. wanted to boot her out because obviously, mm -hmm. so that brings a lot more light to all of that. Yeah, and every time he has one of those encounters, like the woman at the well, when the disciples show up, they're like, whoa, what is he doing? He's talking not only to a Samaritan, which was unacceptable, but he's talking to a woman. Or or the story with the woman with the flask who breaks it open and is anointing his feet and wiping. It's like, why would he let this woman touch him? Like when he's, when he's teaching Mary and Martha, it would have been considered scandalous for a Jewish rabbi to teach a female-only audience. Like, like that would have been considered wild. So in every culture... Unless you were a woman of nobility, high birth, royal, or nobility, like really high nobility, you had no value. And in fact, if you go back in those days, there was an interesting book that I read called Discovering God by Rodney Stark. And there's a quote in there where he talks about if you were to jump into a time machine and go back to the Roman Empire, th the demographics that existed were out of balance. There were way more men than there were women and the reason for that was gender selective abortions or or infanticide because when a baby was born they would say oh well it's a woman kill exposure, it exposure yeah yeah exposure and so in the ancient world you had a paterfamilias which means the man is the head of the family and he can do whatever he wants including murdering infants that was legal and it was commonplace sparta did it before the romans and so this is his quote. Just get this. He says, infanticide was widely practiced by Greco-Romans, and it was especially female infants who were dispatched. 
A study of the inscriptions at Delphi made it possible to reconstruct 600 families, and of these 600 families, only six raised more than one daughter. Wow. It's estimated that there were 131 males per 100 females in the city of Rome and 140 males per 100 females elsewhere in the empire. You have way more men than you have women. There's a, an old papyrus letter that they found from a Roman soldier written home to his wife, and he's you know deployed. He's in Alexandria in northern Africa, and he writes home, and listen to what he says, and just the callousness in which he says it. And he sounds like a pretty good guy otherwise. He says, know that I'm in Alexandria. Do not worry if they all come back, all the other soldiers. Don't worry if they all come back and I remain in Alexandria. I ask and beg you to take good care of our baby son. And as soon as I receive payment, I shall send it up to you. If you are delivered of a child, so she's pregnant, if you're delivered of a child, if it is a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. You've sent me word, don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you not to worry. And here's a husband who's trying to, to calm his wife. Like, my, my love is for you. I'm faithful. I'm coming home. Like he, that's it. And, and yet in the middle of all that, he says, if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, discard it. So what, what kind of value of life did that culture place on women? None at all. I mean, it's almost even, he just moves through that so quickly. It's not even like a major part of his letter. It's like, hey, I'm writing to you about all this other stuff. Here's this, no, it's a yeah, daughter. It's throwaway. Yeah. But, but the side that even, even the sanctity of life back then, when Christianity took hold, one of the earliest Christian writings is called the Didache. And it, it's one of the laws in it is thou shall not procure an abortion nor commit infanticide. Why is that there? Because it's so rampant in the Roman world because nobody wanted female infants. They, they wouldn't keep them around. And it's not until you get to the code of Justinian, who was a Christian emperor, that he says this, every person should support his own offspring and anyone who thinks that he can abandon his child shall be subjected to the penalty prescribed by law. And Justinian made it a rule that if you were a citizen of the empire, when it had become Christian, it was illegal for you to see a baby that had been left out for exposure. You mentioned that word earlier. And what they would do is if they had a baby that they didn't want to keep, they would put it out on the rocks or put it out yeah. in a puddle. And the idea was if the gods want to spare this baby, then they'll spare this baby or, or it's going to get scorched by the sun or taken away by animals. And what Justinian says is as if you're a Christian, you have an obligation to adopt that child. Why? He wrote in his commentary on this that you have been adopted into the kingdom of grace. Wow. Therefore, because you've been adopted when you didn't deserve it, you have an obligation to adopt those that are less fortunate. And so when you get to the catacombs of Rome, one of the things that you see on all the inscriptions of places where they've buried believers, one of the common epitaphs that's down there is the adopted daughter of or the adopted son of because Christians were known for going around and adopting all of these abandoned little girls that were left out for exposure. So in the world that Jesus is born into, in addition to having very few legal rights, women were also not allowed to receive any inheritance if they were unmarried between the ages of 20 and 50. Wow. So these, these were called the Lex Julia reforms, and they required women to be remarried within two years of their husband's death, or they face significant penalties and the loss of their estate. So you got to imagine you're 35 years old, 
you, the love of your life dies. He's got an estate. He's got the inheritance. He's got the money. It all goes to you or your future husband so long as you're remarried within two years. Why? Because a woman could not be trusted to receive an inheritance apart from the management of a man, right? So very little dignity, very few legal rights, no way to appeal that. If their husband divorced them, so if, if your husband dies, you got two years. But if your husband divorces you, you have six months to remarry before they, the government, the Roman government, began assessing penalties on you. Crazy. Also, those are two very common things back then. Yeah. You know, men died a lot, and, and men, because there was such little value of women, divorced them mm-hmm. easily and often. So, like, it's not like this is just like a vulnerable. crazy law that, like, oh, we'll write this just in case. No, this is, like, active and happening. Yeah, completely. And so I want you to imagine, here you have the Roman law that says, Psh, if you're a widow, tough. You got two years or you're out. Well, what does the New Testament do? The New Testament and the Old Testament comes along and says, hold on a minute. True religion gives priority to who? It gives priority to the widow. You'd better take care of the widow. You'd better, you'd better impoverish yourself to go take care of all of these women who have been made vulnerable by this society. The gospel comes along and says, no, 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 they've been made vulnerable by, by the ethics of our modern society. Church, it is your obligation at your own expense to go to the widow to help her. And why does the, you know, one of the reasons when you read it now in this context, you know, back in those days, a divorced woman was marked. They, they were seen as very much an outcast in society. They lost lots of their rights. And so when the New Testament comes along and says, no, 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 we're giving a high bar, high bar for men to be able to divorce their wives, like it has to be infidelity or abandonment. You may not abandon your wife. Why? In those cultures, they were especially vulnerable. So this is, I think I've told this story in a previous episode, but this one blows me away at just how little the ancient Greco-Roman world valued women. And it's the trial of a politician whose name is Gnaeus Plancius. And in 54 BC, so we're talking a couple of generations before Jesus is born, there's a 12-year-old and she's a stage actress. She's a mime in the in the town of Atina. And so during a during a show, one of the Roman officials comes forward, and it's Gnaeus Plancius, and he leads a group of of men. They rush the stage. They brutally rape this girl and abuse her. Nothing happens to him that because that's not seen as a crime in the moment. Like no one's arrested, right? But later. He's, he's put up as an appointee for a political office, and all of his political opponents are looking for dirt on him, and they hear about this incident. And so they say, do we really want someone who's that appetitive and impulsive to be in a government position? So they go find this girl. They tell her story, and it's basically verified. Like There were lots of witnesses. Cicero, who lives right at this time, becomes this guy's attorney. They don't deny that he raped her. And listen to what Cicero's defense is, because it gives you insight into how absolutely repulsively disgusting the ethics of male and female rights were in that day. Listen to this. Cicero says, oh, how elegantly must his youth have passed if the only thing which is imputed to him is one in which there was not much harm in. Mm. So, like, isn't that wild? Yeah. Yeah, so he raped a girl. That's the worst you've got against him? Who cares? Like, what? 
And then he says that Plantius was merely acting, this direct quote, in accordance with a well-established tradition at staged events. And so apparently if you were an actress in the ancient world, it was common that men would rush the stage and abuse you like that. Wow. And never be arrested. That's how wild the ancient world was. That's this is this is all tough. <laughs> right? Even even in the Jewish world, the views of women and foreigners and slaves was so bad that they had a common blessing. In fact, this blessing is still used in some synagogues today. It's called the Burkot Hashakar. And it's the blessings at dawn. And it's these three things. So first is, blessed are you, our God and King of the world, who did not make me a Gentile. Right? So, "Ah, I'm a Jew. I'm not like those filthy Gentiles. The next one is, blessed are you, our God and King of the world, who did not make me a slave. Because clearly I'm much better than a slave is the idea. And then the last one, blessed are you, our God and King of the world, who did not make me a woman. And so... I want you to remember those things, right? So I'm grateful I'm not a a Gentile. I'm a Jew. I'm grateful I'm not a slave. I'm free. And I'm grateful I'm not a woman. I'm man because it's treating Gentiles, slaves, and women as defective. And so Paul's very first letter that he ever writes is the book of Galatians. And in chapter 3, verse 28, I want you to hear what the Christian ethic does. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Right, So you don't sit around going, thank God I'm my nationality. Like, no, there is none of that anymore. There's no slave or free. And there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And the context of what he's talking about here in Galatians 3 is you're all one. You have a new identity that supersedes your identity and gender. It supersedes your identity and your race. It supersedes your identity and where you are in class or poverty or wealth status. Like, because of the gospel, you've now inherited something that's worth so much more than any other identity that you can possibly clothe yourself in, and you now stand to receive the full inheritance of God. So every other identity and all that it entitles you to, it's like a pauper by comparison. Nothing grants you as much dignity or value or worth as being in Christ, And because you have that identity, male or female, slave or free, Greek or Jew, you have been promoted to become the son of God, heir to the, like to co-reign with him in heaven. You've been seated in the heavenly places. Everything about that takes the very lowest and exalts them in a spiritual sense above Caesar himself. Like, and so it takes the lowly and it exalts them even above the greatest people of that day. Yeah, I mean, that's beautiful for us to hear now. Obviously, Galatians 3.28, we need to hear that mm-hmm. in, in our world. But imagine hearing that as those people. Uh, wait, just really? astounding. Like, just like jaws on the floor. You're like, what? Mm-hmm. What'd you just say? And I'm sure people were just livid and angry, obviously, if you're a Jew, a free man, or a male. Yeah. But everyone else is like, oh, no, he's talking about me finally. The first people <laughs> ever not to... I mean, obviously, they talked about women in those quotes earlier, but for the first time ever, they're being shown something other than hate, other than mm-hmm. just prejudice. It's amazing. Now, imagine living in that culture, being the woman at the well. Now yeah. you, you gain a glimpse as to why this woman would run back into town and be like, you wouldn't believe the guy I just met. Like, her entire identity has been shocked, you know. 
She's been loved. She's been shown dignity. You know, Jesus looks at her and says, God is seeking exactly someone like you. Yeah. Whoa. The same thing you imagine in Luke 7 when you have the woman who's a sinner, who's pouring out the stuff at his feet, the perfume and wiping. Like, what did what did he do that made her so absolutely blown away that she was willing to risk everything to show him that kind of love? He showed her dignity, and he did that at every turn with women. Um, one, of, one of my favorite little nuggets of an argument between the Sadducees and Jesus. They don't believe in the resurrection. So they come to Jesus and they're trying to trap him. And one of the questions they ask, and this is something that's a bummer for a lot of people, but they come to Jesus and they say, okay, we got one to trap you. Suppose a man has a wife, right? Well, he owns her. Essentially in that ancient day, she belongs to him. Well, what happens when he dies and she marries another man? Which man owns her? And what if he dies and another one? And it goes on seven different husbands who all die when you get to heaven because they're mocking the idea of heaven. They hate the resurrection. They don't believe in the resurrection. So they're trying to trap him in an argument about the resurrection. And they say, at the resurrection, to whom does she belong? Yeah. Right? Because a woman has to belong to a man. She can't just Just do that on her own. Yeah, of course. And Jesus says something that's wild. He says, I'm telling you that in heaven, you're neither married nor given in marriage. You don't belong to one another anymore. You belong to the Lord. And there's a lot of people who say, I don't like that. You know, I want to be married forever to my spouse. What, what Jesus is saying, you're going to love everyone at such a different level when you get to heaven that you don't need those covenants that say, you know, you're going to love your husband or your wife more there than you do now. It's not a diminishment of it. It's a promotion of everything else. But nobody belongs to each other specifically in heaven. The woman is not owned by any of those husbands is kind of the response. That would have been wild. Um, And he confronts men. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. So he's calling them out. Like, you cannot just abuse your wife. And you read Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, get this. Imagine how a Roman audience or a Greco-Roman audience would have heard this. 1 Corinthians 7, he says, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And they would have like given the golf clap. Like, yes, thank you very much. That's very true. I, I own her body. And then he says this, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Wow. If you said that <laughs> and in the first century world to the Roman audience that you don't own yourself, your wife does, what? <laughs> like, it would have been tremendously inflammatory. And yet the ethic of the gospel is that women have every bit the same level of dignity, every bit the same level of right to be you know, engaged in, in the ministry and to serve alongside. Now, there are roles that are, that are preserved. But every bit to lead and every bit to contribute and and marriage, you don't just trample over her. You submit to one another and you belong to your wife just like she belongs to you. Revolutionary. Absolutely revolutionary. And you don't now you don't wonder why Paul got kicked out of so many towns in the fourth. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, hey, don't come up don't come in here with all that. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely right. And so Stark 
says, you know, in light of that, because you can imagine if you're a woman living in the first century world, there's no there's no sanctuary for you to go where they're like, oh, you're so valued. You know, we we see dignity with you. But Christianity, revolutionary. Jesus elevated women to the point. Get this. You remember how there's 140 males for every hundred females? Well, even still, Rodney Stark in his book, The Rise of Christianity, pointed out that the abundance of Christian women resulted in higher birth rates and it created superior fertility that also contributed to the rise of Christianity. So huh. why did Christianity explode? It was not just that it was evangelistic, though that played a part in it. It was that all of the women were rain were, it was that all of the women were running to the faith, they were having the children, and they were raising their children up to worship Jesus. And so the faith began to spread because women largely were coming to the faith. And it was such a problem, so many women were coming, that they could not find Christian husbands for them all because the men wanted nothing to do with Christianity. Get that? I mean, you had lots of Christian men but their proportions were out of whack yeah. because the men were like, well, we like the way it is. <laughs> you know, we have all the power. And women were, were coming in droves to Christianity. Cyprian of Carthage, uh, who's an early church father in the first centuries, talked about how he says Christian maidens were very numerous and it was diff- difficult to find husbands for them all. Um, but you, some of the most famous Roman emperors that were around in the early church, Marcus Aurelius, listen to what he says about the early church. He says, they have gathered together from the lowest dregs Mm. of the people, a number of ignorant men and credulous women, always ready to believe anything, and have formed a rabble of conspirators. Celsus, who was one of the first critics of Christianity around 200 uh, AD, he says, with words they acknowledge that such individuals are worthy of their God, right? So, because of Christ, they're made worthy of God. They're made righteous in God's sight. And they manifestly show that they desire and are only able to gain over the silly, the mean, which is like the average, and the stupid, along with women and children. And so the early church was mocked because it could only get slaves and women and the poor and the sick, but the elite of society, the Roman men of society, were slow to come to the faith. Listen, Celsus, when he's critiquing how the early church spread, this is just kind of a cool little nugget. He says, the women are doing a large part of growing the church. He says, when they get a hold of the children privately and certain women as ignorant as themselves, they pour forth wonderful statements to the effect that they not ought to give heed to their father or their teachers, but that they should obey them. They must leave their father and their instructors and go with the women and their playfellows to the women's apartments that they may attain to perfection. In other words, be made righteous by faith. And by words like these, they gain them over. And so what is Celsus saying? There's a real problem because the Christian women in our cities are going around into the streets that the, you know, when the, when the husbands are away at war or whatever and the kids are just out playing, the, the Christian women are going around and gathering up children and sharing the gospel with them. And it's a real problem. So... So women are tremendously involved. Wow. You know, we talked about this earlier, but you go to the book of Romans, and Paul concludes that book 
uh, by pointing out the deaconess Phoebe, and he instructed the church to give her any help that she may need because she had been a great help to him. That's at the beginning of chapter 16. He commended Priscilla as a fellow worker in Christ Jesus. He affirmed women had been in prison with him and called them outstanding among the apostles. He praised other women who had, quote, worked hard in the Lord. And like I said, out of 33 people that he mentions in that chapter, 15 of them are women. And so if you were looking at who is on Paul's ministry staff, it's pretty evenly split. Out of 33, you know, 18 men and 15 women. That's pretty amazing. And in that world, that's crazy. And the Roman and the city of Rome. Yeah. You know, so these are the people that he's writing to. That was wild in those days. Paul's first European convert is, you know, Lydia. Lydia, right. So it's a woman who had made an industry in dyeing fabrics uh, in addition to Lydia. Many women played a significant role in establishing the churches in that region. So when Paul writes to the Philippians, he instructs the church to, what does he say, Philippians 4, verse 3, to help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. Very involved. Like, you did not see that in any other part of Roman culture, but in the church, they were given dignity and they were treated with equality. And that's why women flocked to the church. So Tertullian, listen, he writes this letter to his wife. He's another church father. He says, who would be willing to let his wife go through one street after another to other men's houses and indeed to the poorer cottages in order to visit the brethren? He's like, a Roman guy's not going to you know, allow his wife to do that. So Christian women need to marry Christian men because that's how they do ministry. He says, at Easter time, who will, be, who will quietly tolerate her absence all the night? Who will unsuspiciously let her go to the Lord's Supper, that feast upon which they heap such slander? Who will let her creep into jail and kiss the martyr's chains or bring water for the saints' feet? So... In the early church, here you have one of the greatest church fathers, Tertullian, who is writing, these are all the tasks that my wife does. You know, this is, this is Christian men need to be willing to empower their wives to do this kind of ministry. That's in the early church, and I promise you they were more conservative than us, not less. <laughs> but they understood this. Clement of Alexandria, again, a church father, he wrote that the apostles were accompanied in their missionary journeys by unmarried maidens who were viewed as, quote, and this is straight from the pen of Clement of Alexandria, fellow ministers and dealing with housewives. It was through them that the Lord's teaching penetrated also the women's quarters without any scandal being aroused. And so you don't think about that, and it's not, you know, Paul talks about these women that he's giving thanks for, but this is saying all of the apostles and all of their apostolic journeys, we just imagine them kind of going by themselves and showing up in a town, right? Yeah. Well, Clement is saying, no, 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 they took teams with them. And there were women with them, and the apostles and their you know, co-laboring men would go to the men, and the women would go off and evangelize the women. And so that was what happened in the early church. One of the things that's really fascinating about how you see the early church, is, is we're going to see that Jesus had women who flocked to him. Jesus had people of all different races that flocked to him, you know, Gentiles in addition to Jews. He had the poor. He had the slaves. He had all of these marginalized people who came to him. And in our modern culture, we look and we say, 
you know, that still should be happening. That still should be happening. And what, what we do as a church that I think is a disservice to the mission of what Jesus calls us to is we adopt the world's way of doing it. And that's a doctrine called intersectionality that we've talked about before, right? We, we look at marginalized groups and we say, okay, there's, there's an oppressor and an oppressed in virtually every category that you can think of, right? So if we were dividing up racial, you know, which, which race has all the power and which races are oppressed, which gender has the power, which, you know, sexual orientation, which religion, language, I mean, you go down the list and you can come up with, okay, this is the dominant one that has all the privilege and these are the oppressed. And we begin to categorize everything in terms of a victim and a villain, an oppressor and an oppressed. And what it does is it sets us at war against one another. And you have, you know, like you and I are white, we, but we can't get rid of our whiteness. And yet there's something about that that, that makes us guilty. And it sets races against each other. It sets genders against each other. It sets... But Jesus, I want everyone to hear this. When Jesus went around and he cobbled together these groups that were marginalized, at no point ever do you find it come out of his mouth, now you're the oppressed, let's go take it to the oppressor. Hmm. You know, you're, you're women and you've been mistreated, so let's go take it to the men. You know, let's, you're, you're a Gentile culture and the Jews have looked down on you or vice versa. We need to set at odds and, and go to war. What Jesus does, and this is the magic secret sauce of the gospel, is he gives an identity that transcends all that. It transcends race. It transcends gender. It transcends even morality itself, right? It calls you to a greater identity. And in that identity, you're always looking out for anybody that's genuinely oppressed or mistreated. And because you've been shown such mercy and because the God of the universe has poured himself out to lift up your lot, now you're always looking, no matter what, to pour yourself out for the sake of those that are marginalized. But it doesn't set you at odds. The gospel doesn't allow you to set dividing lines between all of these different innate identities that are God-given. You know, you're, you're born white. You didn't earn your white skin, and you, you're not to blame for your white skin. You're not, you weren't born because, you know, you didn't earn your maleness, and you're not to blame for your maleness. But this culture begins to treat all of these innate identities as though they're something to be repented of. And that's gross. It's flat-out gross, and it's hostile to what the gospel did. It's the antithesis of what the gospel did. Am I in trouble? You got to say it out loud so you can be canceled too. You're not in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just think of that whole time that that is, tr- you know, even as they were anticipating Messiah, they wanted to take it to Rome who had been oppressing them. Mm-hmm. That they wanted Jesus to come in on his horse with a sword and let's say like, you know, let's stick it to Caesar. Mm-hmm. Right. But Jesus didn't do that. <laughs> That's right. You know, in our last episode, Laura and I were talking about this, that there's this emphasis that all of these Roman centurions come yeah. to faith. Like, hold on a minute. The Messiah was supposed to come and put those people to death. They were the ones leading the armies. Like, the real Messiah puts Roman centurions to death, and yet the Gospels in the New Testament are filled with all of these Roman centurions coming to faith. <laughs> the Gospel doesn't set people against one another and say, hey, you're the oppressed and you're the oppressor, now duke it out and I'm on the side of No. 
the gospel lifts everyone up. It comes to the oppressor and says, you don't realize how oppressed you are. It's like Revelation chapter three, where it says, you know, the proud come and they say, look at me, I have need of nothing. I'm wealthy and all these things. And he says, what you don't realize is you're poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. Hmm. You know, the hardest part of the gospel is getting somebody lost because they come with all their privilege and they come with all of their morality and everything else that they think they've got together. They think their wealth is their fortified city. And the gospel comes and says, you don't realize how bankrupt you are. You don't realize how hopeless all of your identities that you've cobbled together are. You need Jesus. And that, that identity takes people from the farthest ends of the spectrum and gives them a common banner to run under. And it has nothing to do, if, if, if my chief identity is my race, I immediately have a whole bunch of people on this planet that I can't relate to mm-hmm. in an ultimate way. But if Jesus is my chief identity, now the world opens up beyond every barrier imaginable of the ultimate thing that I can share with somebody. And we've, inside the church, have got to get better at seeing our identity through those lenses. It's not political party. It's not race. It's not gender. It's not blah, 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 morality, whatever. It's Christ. Mm -hmm. And because he's our identity, now we look outside the walls of our church and we're motivated to help anyone and everybody who is downtrodden or forsaken or facing injustice because we have a greater identity than anything that the world squabbles over right? Like, yeah. come on, church. Anyway, I'm on my hobby horse. <laughs> so beyond that, okay, so that's women. Now you get to a culture of mercy. And what we don't understand is the Bible comes with famous teachings, like in the Old Testament, where you're to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly. But if you went to the Roman world, mercy was not seen as a virtue. Neither was humility. Huh. It was not. You go to Homer. So here's, you know, the one who, the poet who wrote all the Greek stories. Listen to what Homer says. He says, give to him who gives, but do not give to him who does not give back. So what he's saying is the whole purpose of giving is to get back. So if somebody is so poor or so incapable of giving back, don't give to him. You have Plautus who's writing, you know, 184 BC. So he's, these are the minds that are shaping the world of Jesus's day. And he says this, this is wild to me. He says, you do a beggar a bad service by giving him food and drink. And so you can have, okay, well, maybe that's because you don't want to enable him to stay yeah. homeless or what. No, that's not what he's getting at. You do a beggar a bad service by giving him food and drink because you lose what you give and you just prolong his life for misery. So why should you not give a beggar food? Keeps him alive. It'll keep him alive. He's worthless. Mm-hmm. He's a beggar. Let him die. That's the idea. You go to the Republic. So here's Socrates, one of the greatest minds in the history of the world, let's just say it, non-Christian mind. And what does he write in, in this book? He says, those who are diseased in their bodies, they leave to die. This is what a just regime should do. Hmm. If you're diseased in your body, they should be left to die. And the corrupt and incurable souls, in other words, if they're immoral people, well, then they should put an end to them, like just kill them. That is clearly the best thing for both patients and the state. But then you contrast that with the with the church. You know, you have the ancient world that's saying, you know, the poor are a drain. If they're beggars, they're bad. It's sickly, let them go. Then you get to the church and you see Aristides of Athens in 120 AD writing things like this. If there's any poor, if there's if there is any among them, any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, 
then the church fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. So you didn't just fast it as an opportunity to worship. You still made the meal, and you took it and gave it to the needy. The Roman world looked at that and went, why? You're, you're going you're gonna to pass up a meal and give it to somebody in need that's poor and lesser than? Or Origen, who writes, let the poor man be deprived with food from self-denial of him who fasts. In other words, Those that are poor need to be taken care of through your self-sacrifice. That ethic was wild to the Roman emperor. So you have Emperor Julian, who's in the middle of the 300s. Listen to what he says about his own people, right? So he hates Christianity. He is... He's known as Julian the Apostate. He, he, he hates Christianity. He does not like it. He wants to stamp it out. But he says this, it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg, he's talking about Christians, when no Jew ever has to beg and the impious Galileans, Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. Hmm. All men see that our people lack aid from us. And so people are flocking to the Christians because they are giving selflessly. They're taking care of the poor. They're tremendously relevant, and they're unbelievably generous. And the richest, even the emperor himself is like, but they see that we don't do anything. Why? Because we love our stuff. If you went into the tables of the Roman law, this is table four out of the Roman law. Listen to the ethic of that day. A notably deformed child shall be killed immediately. Like, whoa, you have a child born with a deformity? It's not an option. You shall be killed immediately. To a father shall be given over a son the power of life and death. That was in the tables of the Roman law. Like if a dad did not want you to live, you were killed. Wow. And it could be for any reason. The stoic view of mercy, like all these different philosophers, this is Seneca, who's one of the, you know, the famous, famous stoic. He says this, you know, he's kind of trying to reason what you should do with weak or, or disabled people. He says, you know, we, we knock mad dogs on the head. We slaughter fierce and savage bulls, and we doom scabby sheep to the knife lest they should infect our flocks. We destroy monstrous births, kids that are born with deformities. And we also drown our own children if they are born weakly or unnaturally formed to separate what is useless from what is sound in an act not of anger, but of reason. And so here you have Seneca, who's one of the greatest minds right from the period of Jesus, who's saying, like, of course you should kill sickly people. Of course, if you have a a child who's born with some kind of disability, kill them. That's not anger. That's, of course, the rational thing to do. That's the, like, you got to climb into the first century. It's very Nietzschean. Like, the strong survive. That's the ethic that was there. And when we say that our ethics of charity and humility and mercy are just natural because we're good people, no, we inherited those from the gospel. They were not found on the world prior to the gospel. We owe that to the Judeo-Christian heritage that we've gotten. Plutarch talks about this, how when he went down to Carthage, so this is 100 AD, right after Jesus, He says he goes down to Carthage and he writes this, with full knowledge and understanding, the women offered up their own children and those who had no children would buy little ones from poor people and cut their throats as if they were lambs or young birds. Meanwhile, the mother stood by without tear or moan. That's the world that the gospel's born into. And then when the, when the, when the, Christianity begins to spread and you have these horrible plagues like the Antonine Plague and the Cyprian Plague. 
these this is where it becomes famous that the world begins to see Christians running toward the plagues rather than running away from them. And so, for example, the Antonine Plague claimed 10 million people. It took the one of the emperors. Um, less than a century later, the Cyprian Plague came, and it killed 5,000 people a day in Rome, they say. Wow. The church fathers were writing about how they believed that this was the apocalypse at the time. It was that bad. But Cyprian of Carthage, great church father, loved this guy. I wrote a paper on him for seminary. But listen to what he says. He says, the excessive destruction of a hateful disease invaded every house in turn among the trembling population. Every day, numberless people were suddenly attacked and died in their own homes. Everyone was shuddering, running away, trying to avoid the contagion even wickedly exposing their own dear ones, as if by pushing out the person who was dying of the plague, they could keep death out of the house. No one thought of anything except his own selfish interest. No one helped anyone else the way that they would have wanted for themselves. Over the whole city lay not just the bodies of the dead, but the rotting carcasses no one had the courage to take away. Now he contrasts the Christians. This is wonderful. What a grandeur of spirit it is to struggle with all the powers of an unshaken mind with so many onsets of devastation and death. What he's saying is like the Christians just seem unaffected by it. They were bold. What sublimity to stand erect amid the desolation of the human race and not to lie prostrate with those who have no hope in God but rather to rejoice and to embrace the benefit of the occasion and in thus bravely showing forth our faith and by suffering endured, we may receive the reward of his life and faith according to his own judgment. You have the whole world running away in yeah. terror and Christians are running toward it. Like I might get a chance to suffer like Jesus, taking on someone else's disease to show mercy and compassion and dignity. And because Christians, though a lot of them became infected, ran in and cleaned up wounds and everything else, it slowed the plague. You know, wow. historians learned that from these Christians. So Dionysius of Alexandria, listen to what he says about that same time period. I love this stuff. He says, most of our brothers showed unbounded love, and I love that it's most. <laughs> you know, so it's like some are like, eh, no yeah. thanks. But most, most of our brothers showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick and attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest. And this was considered to be one of the most pivotal moments for the explosive growth of the church evangelistically because so many people suffered. This, everybody was touched by this. Everybody had an aunt, an uncle, a brother, a sister, somebody who died, and they saw the Christians running toward the suffering and giving ministry to those that were in their families when they were too scared to love them as they should have. And the church, people saw these people are willing to die, to die, to show great love for those that have actually hated them and persecuted them to this point. Yeah, you weren't wondering what those people's identity was in. Yeah, right? You know, you're not like wondering, hey, do these people really believe in Jesus? Do they really? No, their actions showed it, you know? Mm -hmm. 
and they're willing to give their lives. You know, like I, I, I try to think, you know, if we were as radical as the early church, like even, even with our money, right? This is an uncomfortable topic, but what if you got radically generous with your money? What if, what if you took your, your savings and things that make you comfortable and you said, you know what, I'm going to go find somebody who's just down on their luck and I'm going to change their life and I'm going to change their kids' lives and I'm going to live radically generous like they did. The church could change. The, even if the church tithed, it would radically change the world. And people wonder why the church is no longer relevant. We, we give away all the roles that the church used to do to the government now. Like it used to be the church that was on the front lines to rehabilitate addicts. Less so now. It used to be the church that founded the hospitals. It used to be the church that founded the schools. It used to be the church that took care of the poor. It used to be the church that was on the front lines of every, every battle in the realms of the broken world. And now it's been kind of taken over by government and church has become, you know, a Sunday, you know, rah-rah session and a sermon. I'm oversimplifying. But if the church ministered like this church ministered, the church today would have the same results. Mm. It would be powerful and it would be relevant and people would love the church because now what is the church known for? I mean, you have wonderful organizations who do incredible social work um, and lift people up. We have a great school here. We, we work with the homeless. We, we have lots of ministries here. Imagine that ramped up tenfold, you know, how much of an impact we could have. And so that's what the first century church did. It, it showed incredible dignity to women. It showed incredible dignity to the poor, to the sick. And lastly, for today, it showed incredible dignity to slaves. So roughly 20% of all residents inside the Roman Empire were slaves, equating to 12 million people. A third of the res- residents of Rome were slaves. And you know, if you were a slave, chances are you were born into it. But others were captured soldiers. Like if you owed a debt, you were put into debtor's prison or you could go be a slave and work off your debt. Criminals, orphans, children that were left out and exposure were often picked up by other people and made to be slaves. Um, and the life expectancy of a slave was between 20 and 30 years. It was not good. I was at a concert last night and they said a fact that right now, there. this surprised me, there are more slaves in the world today than ever before. Have you ever heard that? Yeah. I, that blew my mind. You didn't, That's crazy to that? me. Like, because we live, I mean, I guess I'm, I fall trapped to the thing I know is not true, which is all the chronological snobbery that we're better than we've ever been. <laughs> like, no, there are more slaves today yeah. than ever. And, you know, it was, it was an appeal to, for a ministry to, to go and help liberate them, you know, sexual slave trade, all these different yeah. kinds of slaveries. But there are more today than ever. That's wild on our watch. Anyway. All right, so here's a, a first-century historian called Diodorus Siculus. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, but we're going with it. This is how he describes the life of slaves. He says, Slaves who are engaged in the mines produce for their masters revenues and sums defying belief, but they themselves wear out their bodies both by day and night in the diggings under the earth, dying in large numbers because of the exceptional hardships they endure. Other historians pointed out how the Jews specifically were, were kidnapped from their lands and sent to these mines. So this would have been very, very relevant for Jesus and his apostles. They would have known of these incidents. He goes on and he says, For no respite or pause is granted them in their labors, but compelled beneath the blows of their overseers to endure the severity of their plight, they throw away their lives in this wretched manner, 
Indeed, death in their eyes is more desired than life because of the magnitude of the hardships they bear. There's an, another guy who uh, is writing in the ancient world, and he's talking about slaves. This is 160 A.D. Um, he says, What scrawny little slaves they were. Their skin was everywhere covered with purple welts from their many beatings. All of them decked out in rags, carried brands on their forehead, had their heads half shaved, and wore chains around their ankles. As soon as Rome started becoming Christianized, they didn't outlaw slavery, but all of the like crazy abuses and the like beatings and you know how they would literally brand yeah. slaves on their foreheads. Um, when Constantine came along, and he's oh. the first Christian emperor, one of the things that he did is they they banned the tattoos on the faces. They they wouldn't allow like crazy beatings or anything like that. And so, and the argument for that was he said you could not put a brand or a tattoo on a slave's face because quote the image of the divine beauty should not be defiled. In other words, man well, is made in the image of God. You will not beat it or abuse it or tattoo it was kind of the idea. Um, Yale University professor Erwin Goodenough. Isn't that a great name? It's literally just good enough <laughs> yeah, put good together. Enough. So just so you guys know. <laughs> I'm not mispronouncing yeah. it. At least I don't think so. Uh, he said, still more obvious a reason for the undesirability of Christianity in Roman eyes was the fact that its converts were drawn in an overwhelming majority from the lowest classes of society, the servants and the slaves of society. Why this would have been so absolutely powerful if 30% of the Roman Empire is slave class. Yeah. And again, like women, no value, no dignity shown. And yet you read a gospel where Jesus says things like, no longer do I call you slaves, but I call you friends. Wow. How would you have heard that? Or you read you know, all throughout the Bible, again and again, the lowly will be exalted and the exalted will be brought low. Or probably the most powerful passage in Philippians 2, where think about hearing this, because we, we get used to hearing this, but imagine being a slave, a female slave in the first century and hearing this. Although he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. So here you have God who became a slave and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. Why? God became a slave so that you slaves could reign with God. He poured out all of his wealth, all of his treasury, so that you could be elevated from your poverty, from your, you know, no a life of no dignity, no value, no appreciation, no rights, no no value. And God took on your lot so that you could share in his. This would have been mind-blowing in the first century and all of these ethics that we now you know take for granted no 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 like in the bible it's if there's going to be slavery masters provide your slaves with what's right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven and so the idea was when we think of slavery we think oh that's that's totally wrong because we live in a culture of chattel slavery that's what america was you know where it was you owned them there was no dignity you beat them it was wicked to the bone but in the first century 
slavery was seen as a necessity and slaves were grateful for it because not ever, you didn't have grocery stores and you didn't have minimum wage jobs and you didn't have people that were trained in public schools, which by the way is a gift of Christianity and all these things that come to us. You had people that would have starved to death. And so if you go back to those first, you know, the, the, the first century, what you find is that some people were just incapable that, you know, you, you didn't have the education, you weren't trained up in skills, you didn't have the land, you didn't have those things. And if you were just thrown out and said, congratulations, here's your freedom, you would have starved to death. And so there was a culture of slavery where you could indebt yourself to somebody to be in their home, to, to receive from their hand. And what Christianity did is it came and said, okay, we're not going to abolish this system because that might throw you out and put you at even greater risk of starvation and other things. But here's the deal. Masters, you better treat your slaves in a way that shows them dignity and value and care and compassion because you better remember you got a master in heaven. Or Paul, when he does find a slave that does not want to be a slave, it's not an arrangement of need. What does he write? This is in the book of Philemon. He's saying, charge anything that this slave costs you to my account and set him free. So whenever you see the gospel in motion, the gospel leads to freedom, it leads to dignity, and it brings together those that are searching desperately for dignity because the world is not offering it to them. And that's what you find in the early church. It's astounding. It is. It's, it's absolutely astounding. And yet it does it in a way, again, that doesn't pit people against each other. Yeah. It gives them a common identity, a common hero. It recognizes our common suffering as human beings and a broken sin nature. And yet it lifts Jesus up and it says, here is a Savior who has come to set you free from everything, all of these, these faults of a broken world, but he's also come to bring all of the different races, genders, like you're coming together as a family. This should not be what divides you because Christ is greater than all the dividing lines. Amen? Amen. All right. We hope you have enjoyed this. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope it's been a blessing, and we will see you next week or talk to you next week. You will hear us next week. Yeah, that's right. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.